Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. This is your host, Arden Castle, and today I'm joined by Dr. Angie Buckner-Capone and Dr. Marcel Dugan, authors of Mandating COVID-19 Vaccination on Campus, a qualitative analysis of cross-sectional study of California college students. And they're going to help us explore some of the complex realities facing vaccination mandates and related public health strategies. But before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. So Dr. Buckner, will you get us started? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Arden. What a pleasure it is to be here today. My name is Angie Buckner Capone, and I am an assistant professor at San Jose State University in the Department of Public Health and Recreation. My research is focused on student health and wellness, workforce development, advocacy, and public health and education policy. And I'm calling in today from San Jose, California, San Jose State University. Thank you, Arden, for hosting this podcast. It's been a pleasure being part of it. I am Dr. Dugan. I am an associate professor of public health at San Jose State University, and I focus on the societal impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, particularly among marginalized populations. And then also I'm interested in modifiable risk factors for breast cancer survivorship. I am currently on sabbatical at Frederick Alexander University in Erlangen, Germany, which is about two hours north of Munich. So that is where I'm calling from today. Wonderful. And thank you both for popping onto the podcast with me today. And so for the folks who haven't had a chance to read through that paper yet, Angie, can you give us a quick summary? Absolutely. So First, I want to start off by giving a little bit of a background on how we conceived of the paper. So our initial focus and our interest was on vaccine hesitancy. And it was at a time early in the coronavirus when we were navigating vaccines that were not yet approved by FDA. And in the higher education environment, we were still navigating students taking majority of their classes online. At the time that we conceived of the study and that we were really interested in it was right in the moment that we were preparing to come back to campus. And Marcel and I had a lot of questions on how we were going to support and navigate the support to students as we did come back. So we really wanted to think about how anxious how stressed, how nervous were students, and where were their thoughts kind of grounded in their preparation for returning to campus. And we were particularly interested in how safe they were in line with their preparations for um, spreading the coronavirus once they did return. And so we wanted to know how many students had been vaccinated, how many were planning on getting vaccinated, what their concerns, their hesitancy was in relationship to the vaccine. And because our campus and our entire system had the mandate in place, we wanted to know what students felt about that mandate. And so we 
we're really grounded in the idea of how can we best support faculty and students in coming back to campus safely? And that was really like the motivation for the study and the questions that we had. What we ended up getting was an incredibly rich data set, which partly told us that students had a lot to say. They had a lot to say. They really wanted to talk about it. They had a lot of feeling. They had a lot of emotion. And they didn't necessarily have a lot of outlets within the institutional environment to convey or express the feelings that they had. So we ended up working on two papers simultaneously, one that looked specifically at vaccination hesitancy and looked at our full data set, and then this paper that looked specifically at the vaccine mandate. And for this paper, we looked primarily at just the qualitative data. And when I say just the qualitative data, the volume of qualitative data that we analyzed was extensive. It was a lot of volume in terms of, of the words that people had to say. But we analyzed this paper and we wrote this paper still in relationship with the vaccine hesitancy paper because there were so many complementary ideas that evolved from the full data set and that really the hesitancy that students felt and the hesitancy that, you know, we noticed in our just society at large really fueled the perceptions that people had about the mandates. And so they're not one and of the same thing. And we definitely saw that in our data set. It wasn't as simple as saying the people who were hesitant towards the vaccine were also against the mandate. It was far more complex than that. But there was a lot of complement. It sounds like there's definitely some complex divergence that we're experiencing, not just noticing that hesitancy, but also in the context of the mandate. And so Marcel, can you tell me a little bit more about where that sort of offshoot went for the second paper? Yeah, well, so in the second paper, we were actually more interested in vaccine hesitancy itself, right? not necessarily thinking about the mandate, but we wanted to explore the factors that were driving vaccine uptake or lack thereof among this population. And so the first thing we did was to try, because this was a controversial time anyway, right? We had in the national context, a lot of people, a lot of public health professionals were saying that the vaccine was safe and effective and it was recommended broadly, you know, at least among adults to start with. And so that was there, but at the same time, there was the, understanding that the timeline was short since we had the virus to the time it was developed there was that concern did we do enough research and so we wanted to understand what this population was thinking in terms of that and so by and large primarily the one thing that they talked about as being paramount in their concerns for not getting the vaccine or about the vaccine in general was about side effects, right? And also the speed of development. So those two themes were overarching in understanding like what they were concerned about with regards to the vaccine. And so, you know, in line with, I mentioned a little bit ago about the concerns, right? In the public context. So we were very careful 
in how we were framing the language. We tried to be as neutral as possible so that we could elicit thoughts and feelings that were representative of how they were feeling as opposed to loading the questions in one way or the other. In research, that is not always easy to do and the tone is not always perfect, but we, we were very careful in thinking about that. And in, in that paper, we also included some qualitative responses as well, because we wanted to give some context to the quantitative responses. Thank you, Marcel, for sort of clarifying those two different directions that the papers went and explaining how that timeline and that speedy timeline might have also been something that was worth exploring separately from this topic, because given this context of university with a mandate and the timing being that they're returning to campus, there's so much to explore about how to support and navigate that return with safety in mind and also allow folks to be heard because it sounds like they had a lot of thoughts and feelings and they had that desire to be listened to from the university, but also that requires some very neutral language in order to ensure that they are being able to speak freely without feeling like there's that researcher's bias in the way that these questions are being posed. And so as you mentioned, they have these thoughts and feelings. What are some of the things that they were explaining? What were some of the things that they were wanting to talk about or wanting to bring up as concerns with this mandate? Yeah. So one of the first things that was obvious and stood out to us was the emotion and the real striking polarization of the words that people chose to use as they answered some of the questions that we were asking them. It was clear that there was a lot of passion in how people thought about what was happening in their experiences and their individual perception and take on the level of risk that they had navigated over the previous year and how they were going to continue to navigate their changing comfort and direction with the risk that they were being presented with. And in our higher education environment, they were all, you know, that we were presenting students with an increased risk in returning to campus. And sometimes that increased risk was, I'm now at a greater risk for being exposed to the coronavirus. And for some students, it was now I'm at, you know, I'm at a, a greater risk for the academic implications of the way that my courses are being taught and the experiences that I'm going to have in higher education. So it was not necessarily surprising to us to read the degree to which their views and their perceptions and the language that they used was polarizing because we were seeing that we were seeing that in the country as a whole but it was still very jarring to read it it was still very jarring to see and see their words and take in their emotion and their passion and just sit with it so we did find that the majority of people who responded to our study they favored the mandate. By and in large, they favored the mandate. They favored vaccination. But the extreme views, they were on both sides, but they were really loud. And the small population of respondents that were really hesitant 
to the vaccination and really critical of the mandate were incredibly loud. But again, the passion was on both sides and on the full continuum. For example, one of our vaccinated students who reported that they were in favor of the mandate, they had been vaccinated. One of the things that they put in their responses at one point was, it's time to stop fooling around with COVID and stop indulging the plague rats. On the other extreme, somebody who was not vaccinated and very critical of the mandate said, well, whether or not I attend this fall, I'll be showing up on campus without a vaccine and without a mask. And as a public health professional and as a community health educator and as someone who likes to believe in the power of people to make change, it was a lot. It was a lot to read and it was a lot to feel and take in. The volume of the emotion and the meanness that came through in some of the words that the people were reporting and using to describe how they were feeling. I'm hearing that folks were very passionate in their responses and this was sort of centered around the risk of returning and I guess unsurprisingly was reflective of the opinions of the country at large and while the majority favored the mandate and vaccination that both extremes were being heard and in some ways I'm very proud of your work of being able to hear perhaps perspectives from both sides with such passion and such honesty that they felt comfortable sharing and so given their opinions and thoughts and feelings that they were able to share with you all, how does this pertain to the future? So what does the future of vaccination and mandates, what does that look like? Complicated. <laughs> yeah. Complicated and complex. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's, it's very interesting to watch, right? Because most of us grew up accepting vaccines you know for the most part vaccines childhood vaccines they were already around universities had vaccination requirements before coming in and we just all got them and and just went along and then here comes this pandemic situation right and i think to a large extent people are more vocal we now have social media so everyone has a platform and there's an opportunity for voices more voices to be heard i think more than before right more than how it was and so to a large extent and i've said this before a lot of the the current context is now fraught with politicization you know we hear oftentimes and especially even at the start of the pandemic it got really broken down at least in the us along political lines Right. You know, just in the normal media, you might hear, oh, Democrats say this, Republicans say that. But what does the science say? We really do need to go back to those kinds of conversations grounded in the science. Obviously, science and research, it changes over time. And the more we know, the more things change. And so we should be focused on using the best available knowledge that we have at the time and make sure we put our priority on rigorous research, right? Having said that, what we are seeing is that 
COVID is not a joke, right? In a proportion of people who develop the disease, they can have long-term consequences, right? Even if they have been vaccinated, there is a risk of some neurological diseases and some, you know, cardiovascular diseases as well. Basically, COVID can infect many organs throughout the body. And we see that even in cases of vaccination. Yes, vaccination does reduce long-term serious diseases, but at the same time, with COVID itself, there are very serious consequences and those should not be ignored. And I feel that we have generally become more, more, less fearful of the disease. And I don't know that it's completely warranted. So in terms of thinking about the future, yes, I would just say that we should not abandon completely all the protections that we had at the beginning of the pandemic. I had been hoping that with all the public health measures like the masking, the vaccinations and all of that, that the disease would go away, but it just keeps changing. We see new variants that are more contagious than the previous one. And so it's here, it's here for a while, but just because our tolerance for risk has gone down, doesn't mean that the disease is any less serious. Yeah we're seeing like the infrastructure and the system to support people in getting a vaccination for COVID has radically changed in the last year. And with, you know, currently vaccination rates or booster rates are way down and the way that the government and our healthcare system has both communicated to the importance or the value of continuing to get boosted And then make that available to communities has been really challenged in a lot of places. It seems like that there's two really important conversations here. One is COVID specifically, and how do we as a country, a community, or from a global perspective, navigate the long-term situation with COVID in our communities? And then also, how do we use this opportunity to think about vaccination and vaccination programs beyond COVID? So just as a as a whole, what does this mean for, for vaccinations? One of the things that Marcel and I wrote about in our discussion was that there is a term called spillover, which is a concern that vaccination hesitation around COVID would broadly impact vaccine policy. And at the time that we first started to read what others were writing about spillover and think more about that, there wasn't a ton happening in the CSU. But at the time of publication, it did appear to be that that was a correct prediction. And currently we're seeing that in the CSU. So the California State University system of 23 universities, public universities in California, there is not currently a COVID vaccine that's required. In fact, almost all of the vaccine requirements have been rolled back in the CSU. Currently, right now, there is only one required vaccine for students in the CSU, and it's Hep B. And ironically, COVID-19, COVID doesn't even show up on the list of recommended vaccines in the vaccine policy for the CSU. That is surprising to me. Marcel, did you have something you wanted to add there? I see that you're smiling. No, it's just like you said, surprising. That's a, that's a difficult one. 
but we will just see what what evolves and if anything changes i do think that the science and the research is still evolving we're learning now about long covid you know before long covid was six months now it's two three years right and so all of that will add to the knowledge and i hope that as a public health and as a research and scientific community we can use the information from ongoing studies to assess whether changes need to be made yeah absolutely and as you also mentioned earlier, that vaccine requirements are not necessarily a new concept, yet this time is sort of different because we have this political polarization away from science. Even though science is telling us that there are these very serious consequences, long COVID being one of those, but there is also accompanying this sort of a decreased concern over time. And so while we see this infrastructure being challenged we kind of have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for vaccination, especially with the spillover? And so we've sort of talked through why it's a concern of ours, but what might be some ongoing challenges for communities and colleges, either specifics of places where they can push or places where we need to be a little bit more gentle? What does that look like? You know, I would say the most important thing would be to acknowledge, right, the concerns. There are views, and you mentioned, and we talked a little bit about polarization, but sometimes there's a kind of shaming involved in dealing with people that don't necessarily agree with us. And, and I think part of that is building trust and maintaining trust and just having these conversations in a way that is respectful of both views, of the different viewpoints. Sometimes it's not just two viewpoints, but of, of all the different viewpoints. I would say that is of paramount importance as well. And I would also say, you know, in line with the trust issue that we have the right level of involvement at the community level, right, to make sure that we're keeping communication lines open and being transparent with the data that we do have and acknowledging what the findings from the studies mean and what they don't mean. Sometimes there might be an over, an over optimism, you know, to talk about results in a way that are not necessarily based in the research as well. So we want to be careful because any time you have something that's not quite accurate, then that erodes trust and erodes the base. I would completely agree. And the importance of building trust and maintaining trust and then sustaining trust is just, I mean, it's not, it's not something new to us in public health, but I feel like we're at a really special place in how to do that. And certainly the ways in which our society and people in our society are communicating is more challenging to kind of think about how do we build trust and how do we as public health people kind of get into that communication channel and that communication system when some of us may engage with that personally different than others and some of us engage with it more professionally different than others. But I think the way that people are describing their experiences can be a real put off, but to Marcel's point, it's really important that we hear them. It's really important that we ground what we're learning and trying to understand about people's experiences in their experiences and their perspectives. I mean, if we center 
our work as dealing with people and people first and recognizing that the decisions that people are making are incredibly complex and they are very much tied to the context of their own experiences. And the more we can understand how they're making sense of those contexts and those experiences might give us some avenues for, for hearing them in different ways, because we did find in our study that vaccine hesitancy didn't mean that they were against the mandate. Vaccine hesitancy meant for many of our students, they had questions that were unanswered. And sometimes the questions that they had were being quasi answered in ways that, you know, Marcel and I might have been like, there's better avenues for accurate information. That's back on us too. How do we make sure that the accuracy of information is produced in ways and disseminated in ways that truly is accessible to people? And I mean, accessible, not just in like, can I get it, but can I understand it? And does it resonate? And does it reflect my reality in ways that will move me in furthering my understanding of my experiences and the decisions that I can make. I think we're at a really complex time in public health. Although if I think about it historically, we probably can always say that in public health, right? We're always at, we're always at, at, at challenging times and in challenging moments. I think it's for me, at least it's part of what drives me in the career and in the profession. It's always evolving and it's always changing and it's always really complex because we're trying to navigate what's right for public and balance that or find some harmony with what's right for individuals. So yeah, trust and communication, I think will be real long-term touching points for public health and for higher education as well. I mean, I think higher education has some unique challenges that our communities and community-based public health might not have, but there's a lot of relationship too. The weighing the interests of the economy and private industry and money is something that we always have to do in public health. And so it's something that is very much tied to higher education and the long-term sustainability of higher education but these institutions are like public health, often designed for the public good. And so how do we as faculty and administrators navigate what the responsibility is of an institution to provide an environment that is conducive to safe, healthy learning and individual and professional growth? That is something that we're constantly doing in our community-based practices and higher education is quite similar, even though some of the contexts that guide those conversations and decisions are different. I think we did hear from a lot of students that they do feel that part of the role of an educational institution is to protect their health and wellness and to ensure that they have the optimum opportunity to be healthy and well. I think that we did hear from students a lot of that, that they're looking to higher education to do that for them and to provide that for them. We certainly know that in our K-12 environments, that there is interest in protecting health and wellness. I think as educators, we all know that healthy people learn better. It's really, you know, like we need our populations to be as healthy as possible and to understand how to be as healthy as possible and to establish environments where they can optimize and build on their own personal and collective health and wellness.
And just to add to that as well, as Angie was talking about communicating, you know, I also was thinking, you know, about communicating and trust. And I think one important piece in all of this also is the idea of equity, right? Especially racial equity, economic equity, all of that in making sure that everybody benefits from health interventions. So I think in Santa Clara County, where we were, especially with the vaccines, they were instrumental in making sure that all the areas, marginalized populations, they had you know, mobile vaccine units and all of that to make sure that people did get access to interventions. I think as a public health professional, I feel like once the pandemic happened, a lot of people were paying more attention to issues of equity and social determinants of health in a way that public health professionals had been talking about it for a long time. But, you know, right after the pandemic, it became part of the national discourse. However, some of that is is waning. Some of the interest in all those equity issues is waning. and We need to keep those front and center. In thinking about the vaccine, you know, looking at the different groups, yes, we did have not necessarily representative, but a good amount of different racial and ethnic groups participating. But for instance, when it came to Asian Americans, they were just one group. And as we know, it's not a homogeneous population. So we need to focus um, research in areas where we are getting a more accurate representative of the US population and making sure and reducing barriers, reducing stigma, increasing trust so that more people want to participate in research. Absolutely. I think that I'm hearing that not only do we need to acknowledge these concerns that folks are having, but also it's sort of this practice of listening. And that goes into, for me, I think two domains that I'm hearing of not only just the trust of providing that accurate information that is accessible and starting where the people are, but also that practice of listening in relationship building and actually understanding the individual context in which people are making these decisions to center equity so that everyone benefits who these individuals are and the context in which they're able to make decisions individually within their communities. And then also Zooming out and perhaps in this specific study, the role and responsibility of educational institutions to create an environment where folks can be healthy and well. And so, Marcel, as you're talking about this interest in social determinants of health and equity, as we start thinking about how we can make sure that we actually are providing these environments for health and wellness, how do we even do research on contentious topics like this one, especially if subjects are deciding what is and isn't relevant. We spoke earlier about some concerns that folks were experiencing about disclosing some personal information as it pertains to this contentious topic and how do we help them understand what is and isn't important for them to share with us as researchers? I think, honestly, it goes back to trust. It goes back to trust. It goes back to transparency. You know, I suppose as researchers, we might want to think about letting our subjects know why we want to collect certain information. And I think in this 
current information age that we are in, people are worried about their personal information being misused. And we have seen that a lot. And so, you know, we need to be able as researchers be able to assure our participants that the information that we're requesting has a purpose and it's going to be used really for the science and not for anything else. But it's definitely an ongoing battle, you know, and, and it's, it's yeah, I, that, that's all I can say at the moment about that. Yeah, it's ongoing. I would agree with that. And I would add that as a researcher, it can remind us the value of the qualitative complement in our research and so having an opportunity or having a space to really hear from people again to Marcel's point that requires the trust is already there and so how do we establish that trust as researchers when you know I, like our study this was a this was a survey we don't know any of the people who participated and I feel like one of the ways that we can establish trust or begin to establish trust is to report what we found you know, I mean, so it comes back to the sharing and the dissemination of what did we learn? And because if we're collecting data and we're not using data, that doesn't do anything to establish or sustain the trust with people. Why would they think that their contributions would go anywhere if we have no intention of, of actually trying to learn from it? I think it also gives us an opportunity to really explore methods that are more participatory and community-based. Of course, that depends on the research study and, and the purpose and all of that. But when we have the opportunity and the time to really involve people in the work and let them have some ownership and some leadership over why the work is happening and what it is that we're trying to learn from it, I think that those things can help. In our study, one of the you know, the, the reason that the part of this conversation came up for Marcel and I was because we had a fair number of people who would, who responded to some of our demographic questions saying, why is this relevant to my vaccination status? Why do you need to know my gender when I'm reporting on vaccination status? And they started to question some of the reasons why we were asking the demographic questions. And to Marcel's point, they were, you know, a little, a little guarded over what can I share? Shared widely and wildly their perceptions and their viewpoints, but then hesitated to share their sexual orientation or their gender or their race or ethnicity. And so I think this really gets to the heart of that question of why would they trust us and who are we to share this you know, their demographic information and have it risk being part of the story of us saying, well, women feel this, you know, and so our participants need to know and understand what we're collecting the information for and why we're collecting it so that they can better navigate what they feel comfortable sharing with us and disclosing to us, which is going to be, you know, a challenge for researchers and community-based practitioners moving forward because we are in a place where we likely need to rebuild trust in our communities. Absolutely. And that responsibility that's falling on researchers to tell participants why we need the demographic data and the purpose that we're going to use that data for 
And as you're saying, it requires that trust, which can be difficult to do with surveys. If we don't know these individuals, we're not building that rapport. It's hard for them to understand us, especially if public health hasn't done a great job of explaining their dissemination plan, of allowing that space for folks to question why that data is being used. On a personal note, as a queer Asian woman, it took me until getting to my master's program when we started investigating our own communities in San Jose to understand why and how my demographic information was helping allocate resources to my community. It wasn't until then that I realized that that information was helpful and that's how it was being used. But prior to that moment, I did not understand how my information was benefiting my community and it felt like more of a risk to divulge that information. And so I absolutely understand folks' concern because public health hasn't done a good enough job to help folks understand and build that trust. And so given we kind of are seeing these holes between data and researchers and science, where are we at a next? So what is next for you both to fill the gaps in the literature? The possibilities are endless, you know. <laughs> I think with our research, we identified some areas of importance in understanding how people make decisions about their health, right? And so, you know, we saw that, for instance, social networks were really important in deciding vaccination. So I'd like to explore more of that to see, you know, how that works, understand a little bit more about the interplay between social media and health. I'm interested in, we do have some data that we are still yet to explore in terms of sexual and gender minorities to understand whether their perspectives and how their perspectives are different, to understand how their perspectives are different. And also, I am really interested in long COVID, but that in itself is a methodological, I will call it... (laughs) I know it's a methodological, I can't think of the word. I don't want to say nightmare, (laughs) methodological opportunity. There it is, you know, to understand because how we get diagnosed, what it really is, what it really means, all of that is still being worked out. So I'm interested in that, but there's, you know, opportunities, but I think Mostly, we can't forget the lessons of this pandemic and hopefully nothing like this ever happens again. But if it does, are we prepared? I'm really interested in the latter part of that, like our preparation for what's next and thinking about like the power of local public health officials to impose some type of a directive or a mandate and what those challenges are going to be like and where we are along this continuum of trust in our communities so that we can begin to prepare for whatever's next, whether it be a pandemic or something else. What we do know is that there will be another catastrophic public health event where we will have to be mobilized to action. 
And are we, you know, are we ready for that at our communities? And I think part of that is going to be to ensure that we have the trust of our local community members. And so I'm very interested in continuing to explore the ideas around public health mandates, not necessarily specific to vaccine, just all of our directives that we might try to impose from a public health perspective and the values and the perceptions and the beliefs of the public in their readiness to receive those mandates. Recognizing fully that the context of the catastrophic event is going to guide a lot of that reaction. I fully recognize that, but I still think there are some foundations in trust that we can explore and better understand. Like Marcel, I feel there's just endless opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. I am excited to see where you all go, whether it's, you know, trust building or applying the lessons learned or continued investigation as perhaps media attention moves to other topics or when we do have that next big public health dilemma, where we go from there. And so I am excited for the places that you are all pushing. And so thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge. And if listeners want to find out more about the paper, they can totally find the whole paper on the SAGE website. And if you follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll see when new papers and podcast episodes are available. And please help us promote this work by sharing the links widely among your networks. And at the HVP website, you can also sign up for new article alerts so that you can know whenever new articles are published on any of the topics that you're interested in. And all these links are going to be available in the show notes of this episode. So thank you again, Dr. Angie Buckner and Dr. Marcel Dugan. And I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.